Turn over in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. We're back in the, the Gospel of Matthew this morning. We've been working our way through. This is the 170th message, if you can believe it or not, in this Gospel. I didn't know that would take that long when I started it. But here we are. We find ourselves in Matthew 23. And I uh, just want to welcome you here this morning, those of you that are visiting. And uh, also want to be thinking of those that can't be here. We, Bob Noto, one of the guys on our worship team, has had, just had knee surgery. So I pray that you would be praying for him to recover completely from that. And also uh, uh, we have others who are down and out. My wife's home with some sickness that most likely I gave her. <laughs> so, and I'm just getting over it and I've been dealing with some vertigo and whatnot. So, pray we'll make it through the message this morning. But it's good to have you here. And uh, I just want to uh, encourage you as we open up uh, the Word of God to Matthew chapter 23 this morning. You know, there's always been... And there will always be uh, people out there in the world who pretend to be spiritual leaders. They pretend to represent God. But when you look at what they teach and how they live and what they preach, it's quite obvious that they do not represent the God of the Bible. Um, and Jesus had such people right there in his presence. And this morning we want to look at how he is going to expose the Pharisees. He's done it several times before. But throughout the Bible we, we hear of false spiritual leaders. In the Old Testament it talks about them over and over again. It identifies them. It warns people to stay away from them. And the New Testament does the same thing. Moses even was in conflict with them, remember, in Egypt. Jeremiah was fighting with them in Judah. Ezekiel faced them, and he called them foolish prophets that followed their own spirit. Our Lord warned of false Christs, people who would claim to be Christ. People who would claim to be prophets from God. People who would even be able to show you signs and wonders in the end times. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament struggled against them and he called them preachers of a different gospel, of another gospel in Galatians chapter 1. He was even so direct as to say that they followed the doctrine of demons when he was writing to Timothy. And Peter said that they were false preachers who secretly bring a damnable heresy and they are like dogs who return to lick their own vomit. Quite a description of a false teacher. John the Apostle, when he saw a coming Antichrist, and many Antichrists already were present who denied Jesus Christ as the true Christ. Jude saw them and called them deluded dreamers who defile the flesh. Over and over again, Paul may have summed it up 
best when he said they are wolves who desire, whose desire is to enter in not sparing the flock. They're always present. They're always eager to counterfeit the work of God. And so we come to this text in Matthew chapter 23, and I just want to roughly divide it up in three sections for you. Uh, we'll look at verses 1 to 12 today, the explanation to the crowd who was gathered there around him. And then we'll look at verses 13 and 36 as one unit, the denunciation of the Pharisees, and then his lamentation over Jerusalem in the closing verses. But remember, these, these kind of false teachers are always there. And false teachers always claim to know the truth. And yet, when you look at them, there's an air of hypocrisy. False religion always puts heavy burdens on the people. False religion always usually is a bunch of show. And it's to be guarded against. I mean, we all need to know what is true and what is false. Don't you agree with that? Why would you want to follow something that's false? And the first 12 verses here are spoken to the crowd and to Jesus' disciples. But this chapter, chapter 23, it's, it's really an expose. It exposes the false teaching of the Pharisees who basically come in under the guise of having the truth of God, the law, and exposing that to the people. And I can't imagine in this situation with all these people gathered around and Jesus begins this just scathing rebuke of them openly. I bet you people were shocked. I mean, this would be on a par of going to the Vatican and standing before the Pope and all of his splendor and begin to rip a tirade on the Roman Catholic Church. People would be shocked. Because they considered these Pharisees, these religious heretics, really, to be righteous. Now, remember, I'm not saying all Pharisees were hypocrites. Because that's not true. One commentator says there was probably about 6,000 Pharisees in that day. With many more who were followers of that group, but not full members. And most Pharisees were middle-class businessmen and were no doubt in sincere, at least in their quest for truth and holiness. The name Pharisee itself, just to give you an idea, it comes from the word that means to separate. Pharisees were separated from the Gentiles, the unclean Jews, those who did not practice the law, the publicans and the sinners they're called in the Bible. And from anyone who would oppose the tradition that governed their lives, they were separated from them. Now, among the Pharisees were a few members who, I think, sought to be true spiritual uh, people. Were, they're mentioned in the Bible, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, a few others. But for the most part, the Pharisees used their religion to promote themselves and their material gains. 
I mean, no wonder Jesus denounced him. Well, let's read our text, just the first 12 verses of it here in Matthew 23, and then we'll uh, work our way through it. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie heavy burdens and hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them even with a finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, For you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Now we're looking at the first 12 verses. And I want you to get this scene into your mind. You look at verse 1 there, it says... Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples. Now that basically just hooks us up with what was going on in chapter 22. Remember what day it is of the week. It's Wednesday. It's been a long day. Wednesday began in the morning when the Lord was coming into the city from Bethany where he had spent the night there in the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And along the way he passed, remember, and he cursed a fig tree, and he taught his disciples a lesson then coming to the temple, which he had cleansed the day before. And when he arrived at the temple, he began to teach. And he was teaching, as he was teaching, there was massive amounts of people gathering there. They were there already because of the Passover feast. And he was stopped by these religious leaders that we're speaking of here this morning. And they began a dialogue, which had gone on now. We've looked at it for several chapters. And they wanted to know by what authority he did the things that he did. And and by what authority did he teach the things that he taught. And he didn't give many authority at first, if you remember. But rather he gave them three parables which basically condemned them. (laughs) And he told them that they would be shut out of the kingdom of God and they would be replaced by others. He obviously didn't take the class on how to influence friends and folks. He wasn't really concerned about that. Then they countered those parables of condemnation 
with three questions, you remember? And the three questions were basically meant to catch him in the public with all the people watching. They would ask him a question and hopefully that they could discredit him. In each of the three questions that they answered, he answered in such a way that it turned it right around and they were discredited before everybody. And then he finally asked them a question about the Messiah, which proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Messiah was both man and God. And at this point, it says in chapter 22, verse 46, no one was able to answer him a word nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So basically, Jesus put these religious, pious people, leaders, spiritual leaders of the day, right in their place. But the dialogue ended right there. And so we begin in verse 1 of chapter 23. This is, you have to understand, the Lord gives his last sermon to the people of Israel. This is it. Remember, Friday he's going to be hanging on a cross. This is Wednesday, the week of Passion Week. His ministry to them is over at this point. This is the last public speech that he's going to give. And he spends his time and his words basically tearing down these false leaders and warning the people around him to stay away from them. I mean, it's a very... Severe, it's a serious presentation here. But it's a necessary one. They're the false shepherds. They're the wolves in sheep's clothing that he spoke of. They damn people and they must be avoided. And so Jesus, with no apology, takes them on. Head to head. And he pulls no punches in making his point abundantly clear. Well, As we look at this, first of all, he gives an explanation to the crowd and his disciples. Now remember, in this section, Jesus explains the basic flaws of the Pharisaical system. He wants people to understand why they should stay away from it. Now, just because he says, then Jesus said to, in verse 1 there it says, then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples... It doesn't mean that the Pharisees and the rest of the religious leaders weren't there. They were. It's just that he wasn't really talking to them. They were definitely hearing what he was saying. They heard it. The religious leaders were all gathered there. And the first thing he points out is that they have a false concept of righteousness. Look at what he says in verse 2 and 3 when he speaks about them. He says, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do, for they preach, but they do not practice. Now, remember, in Judaism, there are various sects, different groups of these religious leaders. The dominant sect was the Pharisees. They were the religious spiritual leaders. They held to the, the, the Word of God and the Old Testament. They felt it was their obligation to make sure that it was preserved for the people. And then you had a group called the Sadducees, who were primarily into politics and basically filling their pockets with money. 
They didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't really believe in a lot of spiritual things at all. They weren't really involved in any theological understandings and, and they were not really even part of the spiritual leadership of Israel. But they did have positions of authority because of their money. And they were high up in the hierarchy of the temple. Pretty much a political and economical operation. And then there were the zealots. Remember who the zealots were. The zealots were also kind of political nationalists. They were almost terrorists. They believed so much in what they did. They went around and just caused havoc for the Roman government. And then there were the Essenes. And the Essenes were basically a sect that believed that they needed time to spend with God's word. And so they would pull away from everybody. And they separated from society. They're like the monks up on the hill. They never really had any impact on society at all because they removed themselves completely from it. And then there were also the Herodians. And they were a political party that was basically pro-Herod. But the bulk of the spiritual leadership of Israel fell to this group called the Pharisees. Roughly about 6,000 at that time. But they were very influential in the community because they came from the middle class. And they were the ones that were committed to the law. Uh, Back in 586, you remember when Judah was taken captive into uh, Babylon And they were there for, remember, 70 years? And then they came back from Babylon and they started to reestablish themselves in the land. And you remember, it was Nehemiah and Ezra. And what they did is they brought the Scripture to the people again. And the Scriptures were discovered. And you can read about it in Nehemiah chapter 8. When they read the Scriptures, they they stood and they would read the Scriptures. And this was after all of those years of not having that. And so the people stood up and they they heard the reading of the Word of God. And they swore to obey the Scriptures. And they swore to be committed to God. And to God's authority and to God's Word. And finally the law was brought back to the centerpiece of their lives. The law was put back in clear focus for them. And that's what they became committed to. Well, the Pharisees were the care keepers of this law. And if you look at verse 2, it says the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Literally, that says the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in Moses' seat. That's a literal translation. There's no record in Scripture that God assigned any authority to this group. Their only authority was the Word of God. Therefore, the people were to obey whatever the Pharisees taught them from the Word. But the people were not to obey the traditions and the man-made rules of the Pharisees. Because, unfortunately, what happened with the Pharisees is they took the Word of God and they said, well, who could keep this? Let's make up our own. So they started creating traditions and making up their own rules. You can't carry a stick on the Sabbath so far, or it's a sin, or you can't do this, or you can't do... Silly things. 
Ridiculous things. But it was things that they could put on the backs of their people. And they could say, here's what you have to keep. These things right here that we tell you to. Don't worry about the rest of it. We're the caretakers of the law. We'll sift through and we'll tell you what to believe, what not to believe. We'll tell you what's needed for you to do and what's not needed for you to do. In, in that position, as you see in many religions even today, the Pharisees began to get a little puffed up. Why? Because they were the sole authority. If you wanted to know what the Word of God said about something, you went to them. And they would tell you, based on what they believed or what they wanted to tell you. I was raised in a church that literally kept the Word of God from its people. Oh, they'd read the Bible. You'd go to a Mass and they'd stand up there and they'd read a portion of Scripture. I remember when I was real, real, real small, it was all in Latin. And I'm not the brightest bulb on the the block. I didn't know Latin. (laughs) Back then, I don't know it today. So I I had no clue what this guy up there dressed in this fancy robe was saying, but it sounded good. Smelled nice in there. They had candles lit and statues all around. I thought, man, this is a holy place. Marble floors. And I remember when you'd walk into that church, you would, you know, you would trans, you would have to transform yourself into a religious person. I remember sitting there as a little boy in the pew wondering, why are we doing this? What is this guy saying up there? I'm bored. I want to go home. My brother or sister would poke me and, you paying attention? <laughs> to what? No clue what was going on. And then there was those parts of the service where they'd do certain things. You know, the priest would say something, you'd have to say something back. And so, you know, oh, that'd be kind of fun. You know, you get to do that and shake people's hands and go through the whole thing. Same thing every week. I could go through a mass with my eyes closed and know exactly what's going to happen in any given moment. Because it never deviated. It was just religion. See, the Pharisees had their traditions. They had their man-made rules. And to the Pharisee, righteousness was really depicted by how well you conform to their rules. How well did you conform to the Pharisees' rules and regulations? Now, they would say, well, that means conforming to the law of God. But they perverted the law of God into something that was a burden to the people. And they totally ignored the inward condition of somebody's heart. It was irrelevant to them. The only thing they looked at was, you know what, if you were there when you were supposed to be there, or if you were doing what you were supposed to be doing on a given day, or if you were eating what you were supposed to be eating or not eating, their religion consisted in obeying numerous rules 
that governed every detail of your life. I mean, including, look over, just look beyond in, in Matthew 23. Look at verses 23 and 24. Matthew 23, verse 23. Look at what he says here. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Then he says this, For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. It gives you a picture of where they were at. See, the Pharisees were careful to say the right words, to follow the right ceremonies, to follow all the little rules and regulations. But they did not, catch this, they did not inwardly obey the law of God. And I'll tell you, as somebody caught up in a religion for 19 years of my life, I totally understand what that's about. I totally understand going through the routine of a religion that is totally unable to save you from hell. But somehow in that process of going to that place and doing what you're supposed to do and even serving in that church, it kind of washes away some of the guilt of your sin. And you think, you know, I'm doing okay. I mean, I'm an altar boy. I go to Mass a couple times a week, go to confession regularly, do this, do that. And everything is in comparison to everybody else. And it wasn't until when I was 19, a pastor sat me down and said, look, the comparison here is not to everybody else. The comparison is to a holy God. How do you compare to a holy God, Steve? Well, I'm not a bad guy. I really thought I was okay. And when he pointed out in Romans where it says, you know what? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I'd read that verse, and I'd look at him and smile on my face. I'd say, yeah, I understand my brothers. <laughs> They're bad guys. They need this, but not me. And I remember that night, he kept reading that over and over and over, and he explained the gospel over and over, and all of a sudden, it was like a light went on. And I realized I had a wrong concept. I had a false concept of my own righteousness. I thought that it came from within. I thought it came from what, from what I did. I thought it came from where I went, who I hung around with, what kind of church I went to. The Pharisees were in that same place. They had a wrong concept of righteousness. In Psalm 51, 6, it tells us that God desires truth in the inward parts He's not so much concerned about the outside if the inside's not right. God always works from the inside out. Even us in the church sometimes, we get that backwards. We take somebody who's maybe not a Christian and we try to conform them. We try to make them into a Christian. Well, that's not going to work. If their heart's not changed, they're lost. 
They could drop every bad habit they have, change the way they dress, change the way they talk, change the way everything. That doesn't make them a saved person. That just means they looked around and learned how to kind of capitulate to the, the standard of Christianity. But do you have a false concept of righteousness? They did. Our righteousness does not come from ourselves. Our righteousness does not come from the church we attend. Our righteousness doesn't come from what we do or what we don't do. If you miss everything else in the message this morning, please don't miss this. Our righteousness can come from the only righteous one, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ and what He's done for you. If you're putting your faith and your hope and your trust in anything else, you've missed it. To preach one thing and practice another, that's that's just hypocrisy. The, the, The world sees that all the time in the church. You hear people, you invite them to, oh, yeah, I know who goes to that church. <laughs> but you don't see them the rest of the week. You just see them on Sunday. Oh, really? <laughs> They're living a hypocritical life. And the reason they are is because somehow they think coming to church gets them some spiritual credit with God. Somehow, during the dance, gets a hug from God. And it just doesn't work that way. The Bible says that outside of Christ, our righteousness, it's like filthy rags before a holy God. They have the false concept of righteousness. I pray your concept of righteousness is only one, and it's based on the perfect sinless, gracious, loving Christ who is our Savior and His work on Calvary, that He died in your place so that God can take His righteousness and transfer it over to you so that you can become righteous in Christ So the people would obey whatever the Pharisees said because they were, quote, righteous. That's why he says there, observe what they tell you, but not what they do. Well, I thought you said they were telling people to do the wrong things. Well, they were. But, you know, here's the, the key to understanding false teachers the key to understanding false religions. Everything in a false religion is not false. Everything a false teacher says is not heretical or false. A matter of fact, it's just the opposite. Probably 70, 75% of it is dead on, Scripture. But then they've got to throw in their own little brand of, of their truth. I mean, when you stop and you think of the Mormon church, you stop and think of Mormons in general, I bet you there's probably most of us in this room know Mormons. And we'd say, you know what? They're upstanding citizens. 
good moral people, care for their family, provide for their family. They're involved in their, their church. They help out. They sacrifice. Give up two years of their life to serve the church. Very honorable. Most people would look at someone who practices the Mormon faith with respect. The unfortunate thing is, is they're not serving the God of the Bible. They're just not. They'll say they believe in Christ. They say they got saved. They say lots of things. But when it comes right down to it and you pin them down to who Jesus Christ is, they're going to have a problem with what God's Word says. And it's sad because they're deceived. They're deceived. They have a righteousness of their own. The false concept of righteousness. But when it comes down to understanding the truth that we see in the Word of God, they're way off the mark. Well, they not only had a false concept of righteousness, but they also had a false concept of ministry. Look at what verse 4 says. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They had a false concept of ministry. See, to them, to the Pharisees, ministry meant, you know what? We, all we do is we hand down all this stuff, all these laws that we've created for you people, we pile it on your back, we add to your burden, and then you've got to do it. And if you don't do it, or if you fail in some way in doing it, then, unfortunately... You miss the mark. You don't add up. In other words, the Pharisees were harder on others than they were on themselves. Bottom line, that's what it adds up to. They took the word of God and they made it a burden on people. They had a false concept of ministry. What's your concept of ministry? Your concept of ministry to think that if you're in ministry, you just sit around and tell people what to do? Beloved, that's a false concept of ministry. Is it your concept of ministry to think that somehow all the minister does is try to get other people to do the things that he doesn't want to do? That's false concept of ministry. To them, ministry meant just burdening down their people. Here's what Jesus says about ministry. Look back at chapter 11 in Matthew. Chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. 
verse 28. Now remember, he's saying this in front of all the people. The Pharisees and religious leaders are are hearing these words as well. And so the people back in 23 are just shocked. But this isn't the first time Jesus pointed this out. It says in verse 28 of Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who, what, labor and are what? Heavy laden. And I will burden you down more. (laughs) I'll pile more stuff on you. No. He says, and I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. I'm lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When's the last time you looked at the burden you were carrying as a Christian? Said, man, I just, (laughs) this is so hard. I don't know if I can do this anymore. It might just be that that's not a burden placed there by Jesus. Maybe that's a burden placed there by your church or by your beliefs or by your guilt or by wanting to conform. But I guarantee you that kind of burden is not placed there by Jesus. Because when it comes to ministry, beloved, ministry should be something that you just embrace. Ministry shouldn't be something that, oh, yeah. Man, God, Wednesday night group tonight, oh, great. Do we go there sometimes? Yep, right here. I'll admit that. But that should not be the norm. The norm should be, man, I can't wait to get together with God's people and minister. To the hurt, to the lost, to each other. I mean, that's what we're called to do as the church. See, they had a false concept of ministry. Jesus came to bring a light, to make your burden light. So many times, I, I, I believe that after I became a Christian... You know, I'd, I'd have to carry around a big list of things. You know, I can't do this. I can't do that. Oh, you can't. Oh, look at those people. Oh, they're not Christians. They're having fun. That's what I thought. But I'll tell you one thing, man. If you cannot have fun as a born-again Christian and do it in an honoring way to the Lord, something is wrong. You don't need to lower your standard to become like the world. I mean, I think Jesus had a wonderful time with his disciples. I don't think he walked around like some, you know, serious guy all the time. He laughed. See, Jesus never asks us to do anything that he has not first done. That's why he came down here on earth. See, the Pharisees were just the opposite. The Pharisees commanded people to do things, but they didn't practice it. They didn't participate in it. It says there in verse 4 that they lay these burdens, heavy burdens, on people's shoulders. 
know, I don't know about you, but I, when I look at the human body, probably the shoulders, maybe outside the legs, are one of the strongest parts of the human body. I mean, you can put, you know, a 100-pound bag of oats on your shoulders. You can put two if you're real strong and carry them and no damage, nothing. You look at how these guys on the NFL field, you know, they run into each other and bam, you're thinking, oh, man, must have just broke their shoulder, nothing. I mean, they got pads and stuff, but you know what? The shoulders are a very, very strong part of the body. And yet he contrasts that with their finger. <laughs> In other words, they're, they're eager to put load down people on their their shoulders with burdens and burdens and all the rules and regulations. But you know what? They're not even going to lift a finger to help. They're not going to participate at all. They were harder on others than they were, than they were on themselves. They were hypocritical religious dictators. That's a serious charge. But that's exactly what Jesus was pointing out here. They had a false concept of righteousness. They had a false concept of ministry. One other thing on ministry is so many times we think that ministry, we put it in this section as something that we do. You know, we just relegate, okay, the ministry is over here in this little box and we do this thing. And we do it on maybe Sundays, we do it on Wednesday nights, maybe we do it on a Thursday, whatever. I think that's a false concept of ministry. I think as a Christian, ministry is not what we do necessarily, it's who we are. We're called to go out and to teach and to preach and to to minister to those who need to hear the gospel. See, the Pharisees had a different idea. They had the idea that ministry was something they did. So they would put on their fancy robes, they'd go out on the corner, and they would present themselves. And everybody would stand back and go, whoa, look at that spiritual guy. Look at what he's got on. Listen to the words, oh, how he prays. And see, the, the Pharisees had no problem not dealing with the poor homeless guy over here who had leprosy. Because remember, they're dealing with the outward, right? They're, they're dealing only with the outward. So when they looked at somebody who had leprosy, they said, oh, God's judging them. They're sinners. I'm going to stay away from them. Because ministry, the false concept of ministry they had was that it's just something they did. When you stop and you contrast that with Christ, Christ was ministry. Everywhere he went, he ministered. It wasn't on a clock. It wasn't on a certain day. I mean, somebody told me one time, you know, you, you need to slow down because if you don't, you're going to burn yourself out. And I'm thinking to myself, who cares? What's the better way to burn yourself out? Is just burn yourself out for the Lord. And go home and be with him and, hey, game over. Now, with that being said, you have to be responsible. You know, you, you can't just, you know, there's a lot of... Pastors that have lost their family, have lost their ministry because of their ministry. You don't want to go down that road. But you know what I'm saying. It should be a joy to minister for the Christ that we serve. 
They also had a false concept of greatness. Look at this in verse 5. And this just goes along with right down the line. You just kind of see this. It's like a snowball building. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. To be seen by others. When's the last time you or I did something because someone was watching us? For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at the feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. See, to them, success meant recognition. Success meant praise, adulation of men. They weren't really concerned with what God thought at all. It was more about what praises they were going to hear from the people gathered around them. They used the religion to attract attention, not to glorify God. In Matthew chapter 5, when Christ was going, in verse 16, he says this, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your what? Good works and give glory to who? Your Father who is in heaven. Your Father who is in heaven. See, that's the other thing about ministry. Is so many times people get caught up in ministry and maybe the ministry goes well. And all of a sudden they start patting themselves on the back. Thinking, yeah, look at this. Check out the size of this church. Check out the size of this mission. Check out the size of this outreach ministry. Whatever it might be. Danger, danger, danger. Think of Lost in Space. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger, remember the robot? That's what we need to be thinking about. We should be concerned with what God is concerned with. And this even meant using religious garb or ornaments to display their piety. It says that word phylacteries there. There were these little small boxes made out of leather, is what they were, into which the Pharisees placed a little piece of scripture. So this is how they took this. And they wore these boxes on their foreheads. And you, they still do. You can go over there to Israel and see them. They have them on their foreheads and they have them on their arms. And they're literally obeying Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 8. In their mind, that's what they're doing. And because they do that, everything's A-OK. I mean, it can't be further from the, the truth. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy Chapter 6, verse 8. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals between your eyes. Then it also says, same thing in verse I think it's eight, 18. And you shall do what is right, or eleven eighteen. excuse me. Deuteronomy eleven eighteen. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals between your eyes. Teach them to your children, and so forth. They literally took that and said, okay, I'm going to rip a page out of my, my thing here, put it in this box, and I'm going to tie it to my head. 
And then they would start decorating them, and they would start, you know, with the, the, the different things, because well, my box is bigger than your box. It's just ridiculous. They also increased the, the size of their tassels on the hems of their garments. <laughs> that had to do with status within the religion. And so they would actually dress a certain way so that people could look at them and go, whoa, isn't that person righteous? Kind of reminds me of a certain church I used to go to. I used to think the priest, when he put on those robes, somehow those robes were holy. The Pharisees also had an idea that position was a mark of greatness. So they, it says there they sought the best seats in the synagogues and in the public dinners so that they could be seen by everybody. I mean, do you understand where a man sits bears no relationship to what a man is? They missed that whole point. Albert Einstein wrote this, Try not to become a man of success, but rather try to become a man of value. They thought somehow their position was going to give them greatness. And beloved, there's a lot of people in the church today that think the same thing, unfortunately. And there's nothing further from the truth. They also used titles of honor that were marks of greatness. The title rabbi means my great one. It was coveted by religious leaders. I mean, sometimes when churches go through the process of looking for a pastor, a pastoral search, One of my early churches, I was part of that. And I wondered if not the men who were the deacons, it was a Baptist church, I was just a youth pastor, but we needed a new senior pastor. And as we began to look, I remember when we would get the resume, the first thing these gentlemen would do, education, education, they'd find. How, does this guy have a doctorate? Is he have a I mean, the guy could be from Mars. They didn't care. They just wanted to know what little letters he had after his name. Not that education is not important. It is. It offers credibility. It offers a lot of things. But don't get caught up in that. Jesus forbade his disciples to use the title rabbi. He said because they were all brothers. And Jesus alone was their master, their teacher. And this is speaking in a spiritual sense, obviously. It doesn't mean you can't go to your professor at college and call them professor or call them teacher. That's not what he's saying. He's, he's relating that to a spiritual relationship. There's spiritual equality among the children of God. We're all under the lordship of Jesus Christ. I remember somebody came to our church one time, and the first time I was introduced to him, started talking, seemed like a nice individual. In about less than, probably less than a minute into the conversation, as we were shaking hands, he says, well, I just want to let you know one thing. I'm never going to call you pastor. 
said, okay. <laughs> I said, is that, is that a problem for you? It's not a problem for me. <laughs> you can call me whatever you want. Call me the janitor. Call me whatever. I don't, I don't care. You know, you get caught up in that kind of stuff. That, that's very dangerous. Talked to a pastor one time, and we were introducing ourselves. And I said, hey, pastor, <laughs> reverend. Reverend. He made it clear to me. He wanted to be called reverend. <laughs> I'm thinking, wow. Different kind of emphasis here. Paul himself even referred to himself as a spiritual father because he had begotten people through the gospel. But here he's, he's using these terms as a way of greatness, as a means of greatness. True greatness is found in serving others, not in forcing others to serve us. That is so key. True greatness is found in serving others, not in forcing others to serve us. Think of Jesus' model washing their feet. And also, true greatness is not manufactured as the Pharisees thought it would be. It can only come from God as we obey Him faithfully in our lives. And as you look at these closing verses here, verse 11, he says, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will what? Be exalted. 1 Peter 5, 6. If we exalt ourselves, God will humble us. But if we humble ourselves in due time, God will exalt us. Beloved, I pray that you have a proper understanding of righteousness. I pray that you have a proper understanding of ministry. I pray that you have a proper understanding of greatness. And that as you apply the word of, your, of, of God to your heart this morning, I pray that if any of those are out of whack, I pray that you would confess that to him, our gracious God who's willing and able to forgive. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. <coughs> Lord, we know that there's a lot of error, a lot of false religion out there in our world. And even some of the true religion is rather messed up, to be honest with you. And we just need to be careful. I pray that you would set a guard over our heart, over our mind. I pray that when we teach, we would teach what is true. That we would point out what is false. That we would not shy away from it. Hypocrisy and sin always need to be exposed. They don't need to be covered up. Maybe you're here this morning and you have that wrong concept of righteousness. Maybe you think your righteousness comes from yourself. I pray that your heart would be changed by the power of Christ in His Word. Pray that he would show you that you need to cry out to him for mercy. We are all sinners. 
We all fall short of God's glory. And the Bible teaches that one day, when we leave this life, when we die, there's only one of two places we're going. It's either heaven, if we've trusted in Christ and His work on Calvary to forgive us and free us from our sin. If we refuse that offer, there's a place called hell that's a very real place. It's a place of torment. It's an eternal place as well. See, the Bible doesn't say you just die and that's it. You rot away in the grave. No, your soul's eternal. It lasts forever. And God has allowed you the grace of hearing his truth this morning. I pray that your heart would be opened and yield to the truth of the gospel of Christ. Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.